Hey, Hills Church, it is great to be with you. For those of you I haven't got to meet yet, my name is Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, it's, it's, it's an exciting weekend here at the Hills Church. At our NRH campus, I know that our Hills Kids team has been working around the clock uh, with volunteers and team members from all three of our campuses uh, to get ready for Summer Spectacular 2019. It's going to be amazing, kicking off, uh, kicking off tonight and then session two later this week. And so uh, if you if you're not planning on coming and, uh, and you've got kids, you've got a family that would be blessed by this or maybe, uh, maybe some neighbors with kids, I would encourage you to reach out and, uh, and invite them because I believe you're going to be blessed by the amazing story of Ruth in God's word. And the other thing that makes this week special is that whenever, uh, whenever I get up to preach, I know that we have one church in three locations, that there are people listening to me at South Lake and West Fort Worth and North Richland Hills, also some joining us online and later on podcasts. But this weekend, we have an honorary fourth campus. Now, let me explain. Uh, we are proud to partner with and support Luminous City, a church plant in San Diego, California. Now, their uh, lead pastor, Carlos Isaziga, reached out to, to me and said, hey, we're doing at, at Luminous City, we're doing a video teaching series. And so rather than just grabbing random sermons from other churches, we love it to be included with churches who support us and who know us. And so I jumped at the chance. So this weekend, we have an honorary fourth campus, and that's Luminous City Church joining us from San Diego, live at NRA. Can we give some love to the Luminous City family? That's right. That's right. Man, love and support to Pastor Carlos and to all of Luminous City. We are proud to partner with you. We pray for you and we love that we love what God is doing through you in San Diego. So whether you're brand new to the hills or whether you're brand new at Luminous City, if you're checking out church for the first time or the first time in a long time, we're stoked that you're here. Uh, We're going to look at a story that God wanted written down so that we could learn from it. So having said that, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 20. Uh, If you don't have your Bibles, we're going to have the words on the screen, but Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. And don't worry, school's out. We're not going to do any math, even though it's the book of Numbers. So no no fretting there. Thank you for the small percentage of you who laughed at my lame Numbers joke. Um, So while you're turning there, kind of set up this, uh, this message for you. I want to show you a couple pictures. And the first is, uh, the, is a picture of the very first time that my wife Courtney and I took our son Finn to meet Santa. Here's the photo. Yeah, not, not very surprising. In fact, uh, my wife and I thought it was hilarious. But as I was watching it happen and then saw the photo, I also had some flashbacks uh, because this, a generation before, is me the first time I met Santa as a little kid. Yeah, exactly. History has a way of repeating itself, but that's not just inside of family trees. You could take something like, for instance, like fashion trends. So here's a different photo of me as a young boy, and I got some awesome sunglasses, but I mostly want you to see the epic overalls that I'm wearing that we don't really see as often uh, right now, especially on, uh, on, on men or boys, and yet I am Oshkosh bagoshing hard in this photo. But I was not the originator of this look. A generation before, here is our senior teaching pastor, Rick Ashley, rocking some overalls as a grown man in college. So good. And he's got the 12-string guitar. I love everything about this photo. Um, Side note, he has already shown this to our church before, so that's why I felt coverage to show the overall photo. Rick, we love you. Anyway, um, 
Also, side note, I really want to see like one of our student pastors try and pull off that look someday. One of our male student pastors needs to give that a shot. Uh, whatever campus you're at, you need, you need to nudge, nudge your, uh, your student pastor. Anyway, so history has this way of repeating itself. And if I had a third set of photos, the first photo would be the vintage one, and it would be in Exodus 17. You don't have to turn there, but it, it would depict God leading his chosen people, Israel, through the leadership of his chosen leader, Moses, out of slavery from Egypt and headed towards a land that God promised them. But this picture would show that they weren't at that promised land yet. They were in a desert with nothing to drink, nothing to eat. And the people begin to complain and gripe and attack Moses's leadership. So God commands Moses in front of all the people, I want you to strike a rock there in the desert and it's going to pour forth water so the people can drink, so that they'll survive. That's exactly what happens in Exodus 17. And the people are provided for and satisfied, and they survive, and they keep going. And you fast forward 38 years later, or thereabouts, and you've got another generation. And They haven't made it into the promised land yet. In fact, an entire generation has been dying off because they didn't have faith to go in. And so now this younger generation, they're in the desert with Moses again. And that photo would be the passage we're about to read, Numbers 20, as history is repeating itself. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and then Hills Church, Luminous City, we're going to unpack together. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff And you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. This is God's word. So we're going to unpack together as history is repeating itself 
And it's not the generational trend that makes us laugh or nostalgic. It's the fact that once again, these people are coming up against Moses. And Moses, as a leader, must be having generational deja vu. Now, in a moment, we're going to deal with Moses and his part of this. But first, we've got to deal with the people. What do we see from these, these people, these Israelites wandering in the wilderness? Well, it's, it's very simple. The people complain. That's it. We're going to start super basic. These people, they're like, they're like some third graders are bound to be on road trips this summer. They complain the whole way there. Like they whine and they gripe and they attack Moses. Do you hear what they said? Listen, listen back to, to their, their critique and attack against Moses. They quarreled with Moses in verse 3 and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. They start with the hottest take possible. We should just die. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? So now they're blaming Moses and they're just getting started as they pile on because their next tactic is like the best way to get hysterical is to get historical. You know those kind of fights? Don't nudge anybody next to you. I'm talking about the kind of fights where you bring up stuff way from the past. Look at what they do. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Like, they go back to something that happened some 38 years before. And they, they pluck that out of the history and throw it back in Moses' face. So what, what, what do we need to understand about these people as they complain? Here's what we need to get. The people had a legitimate need, but they went about meeting it in an illegitimate way. Let me say that again for you, Luminous City, Hills Church. The people had a legitimate need. They needed the water, but they went around trying to meet it in an illegitimate way. They they attack Moses' leadership. They question what God's doing among them. And for some of you, that's, that's, that, that might be the only thing you needed to hear in this message. Because that might describe the season you're in right now, or the season you've been in for the last few months or years, or even the last couple decades, having legitimate needs and yet trying to meet them in illegitimate ways. For them, it was water, and it was attacking Moses' leadership. But in today's world, it's, it's the out-of-work parent who legitimately needs to get a job but they pad their resume in illegitimate ways and then they lie about it in the interview. It's the student who, like, they legitimately needed to get the grade in order to graduate, but instead of really studying and applying themselves, they just cheated on the final. It's, It's the young adult or the young professional who has a legitimate need for community and relationship in this digital disconnected world but they seek it out through partying and sex devoid of commitment. There's too many of us who, with legitimate needs, we go trying to meet them in ways that God does not want for us. So what does God do with that kind of a people? Uh, with with this, this people who, who are just as faithless and questioning and grumbling as their parents, the generation before them, what does God do? What's crazy in this text is that God provides. That's our first big picture glimpse of grace here. That in the face of griping, God gives grace. In the face of whining, God gives them water. God gives them what they need. Which I'm thinking like, God, that's, 
you know, I'm, I'm still new as a parent, but I don't think you're supposed to reward bad behavior with what they wanted. And yet, what we need to understand is that God does not provide water because of their complaining. He provides for his people in spite of it. Because he promised he would provide for them. He promised he would not abandon them. And so he stays with them. And what we see is that in the face of all of their faithlessness and questioning, verse 11 says, water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. Look, some some of you need to hear this today. That if you have faith in God... He is not going to give up on you. He is not going to abandon you, no matter the sins you fall into or no matter the generational cycles that you may find yourself in. Maybe, maybe your dad was a drunk, and for years you've wrestled with your own addiction demons. Guess what? God is not giving up on you. Maybe, maybe it was a grandparent who had an infamous temper in your family and now you find yourself with that same short fuse and you just light into people. Guess what? God is not giving up on you. Maybe, maybe you're in some kind of a family where there's been a cycle of, of poverty or even of overextending yourself financially and you're the latest family member to build up a mountain of debt. Guess what? No matter your desert, God doesn't give up on his people. In his grace, he continues to meet us where we are, to lead us forward, to comfort us. That doesn't mean we're always spared the consequences of our sin, but it means that we are never spared of the presence of God with us, that he's with us, in us, and through us in the desert season if we have faith in him. And so these people, these people in Numbers 20 that are, that are just as faithless as their previous generation, guess what? They got water. Not only that, but by the end of this this part of the story, they're going to get the promised land, even though they don't deserve it. Not because they earned the promise, but because God promised it and he keeps his promises. That's our first picture of grace right here in Numbers 20. That's how God responds to the people. So let's turn our attention to Moses. What about his part in this? A couple things to note. As I read the passage, man, I, I, I wouldn't blame you, especially if, if, uh, if you're new. Man, I, I would not blame you if you were super disoriented, especially with that first verse. Like, they're, they're in this desert called Zin. All of a sudden, there's a woman named Miriam mentioned and then never mentioned again. Like, what's going on? Look, Miriam is not a random member of the Israelite community. Miriam is Moses' sister. What the what the writer here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to help us see is that Moses is in a season of grief. Things are changing for him in a very painful way. He's seen a lot of people that he's led die in the desert, and now his sister is the latest one. He's grieving, he's hurt. This would be a time where you would think that the Israelites would cut him some slack, but instead they cut into him. And they criticize him, and they attack him. And it's amazing to me that initially Moses doesn't react, but instead goes before the Lord. That he retreats, he and his brother, who also helped to lead the people, they go before God. And this, this one's for free. Like, in the midst of a fight or an attack from somebody that you think is unfair, that they're saying things that, are, that, that feel untrue or unfair or lies or whatever, like rather than just shooting back at them, the best thing we can do is take it to God first. I don't need to take my anger back at that person. I need to take it to the Lord first and say, God, help me. God, what am I supposed to do? That's what Moses and Aaron do. And then in this, God speaks to them. 
It's amazing to me that, that throughout the, the story of Moses' life and leadership, there's this intimacy he has with God that God grants him, that he's able to speak with God. The text says like, like one man speaks to another face to face. So, so God meets with Moses and Aaron and he gives them some specific commands. I want you to hear these one more time, starting in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. All right, now this is very similar to what happened a generation before. The people are supposed to be gathered. Moses is going to be there. But, but this time God says, I need you to speak to the rock, not strike the rock. So three simple commands. Take the staff, gather the people, speak to the rock. That's it. Take the staff, gather the people, speak to the rock. So why those three? Let's break those down. The first, take the staff. Now, this was, a, this was a, a staff, a stick kept in the presence of the Lord that Moses takes with him. And it's not just a stick, it's a symbol. It is a sign of God's power and authority. Very similar to the staff that Moses was given early in his leadership all the way back in Egypt when he was going to help lead the people out of slavery there. So Moses would have that staff and through that staff he could perform miracles in front of Pharaoh and he would say, let my people go. At one point, that staff is put in the Nile River, and as soon as it touches the Nile, all of the water turns to blood as a sign of judgment on Egypt. With that same staff, when when the Israelites are trying to make a break for it and escape, all of a sudden the Egyptian army comes chasing them down, and all the Israelites are up against the Red Sea with nowhere to go, about to be slaughtered, and God tells Moses to raise up his hands with that staff, and the waters would part so that they could go through on dry ground and escape. And so, when Moses walks out with the staff, God is sending him with his authority. Saying, Moses, I want your confidence to be rooted in me. You're courageous, you are a leader because I have chosen you and this will remind the people. Which is why, when he takes the staff, they're supposed to gather all the people. Everybody's been criticizing Moses and Aaron and so God wants everyone to see that these two are still chosen by God and still going to be the leaders who help provide. Which is also why, thirdly, God says, I want you to speak to the rock. Now, it's not that speaking was specifically important. It's that God instructs Moses so the people will see, well, this is happening through Moses' obedience to the Lord. All of these commands are meant to support and affirm Moses' leadership that the people have been criticizing. So Moses leaves And he's got those three commands. Take the staff, gather the people, speak to the rock. And he gets two out of the three right. Takes the staff, they gather the people. But from that moment on, everything else he does is not aligned with what God told him to do. So what we see is that Moses rebels. He's not faithful to God's word. And I don't know how much of that was motivated by the season of grief that he's in, where people grieving will do things out of their typical character. I don't know how much of this was bottled up anger and frustration with the Israelites that he hadn't really dealt with. It's probably some kind of a cocktail of all of those things as what we see him do is out of step with what God told him. And it explains part of what he does. Verse 11, Moses said to them, 
Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Now Moses gets in front of the people and he speaks, but not to the rock. He speaks to the people. And what comes out of his mouth is just pure anger and frustration. He's been dealing with these people for so long, and, and, what, and, and, and it shows that Moses has had an anger issue for some time. Early, early in, in, in his life, there was a moment where he, he got in a fight with somebody, got mad about some injustice that was happening in Egypt, and this is even before God had called him, and he killed a man in his anger. And so some of this begins to circle back around as we see Moses struggling with this, coming from this place of frustration and spewing hatred in what he says, which is why later in the Bible, a songwriter is reflecting on this moment in Israel's history. And he's writing a song and he starts talking about this very place, the waters of Meribah. And in Psalm 106, the songwriter says, rash words came from Moses' lips. I heard an author named Darren Patrick talk about words as if they're like wielding knives. So think about this. Butchers and surgeons both use knives, but only one cuts to heal. Butchers cut to hurt. Surgeons cut to heal. Undoubtedly, you have experienced the difference. The difference between that spouse, that family member, that boss or leader Somebody who all of a sudden they lose their patience and what comes out is not meant to help you. It's not meant to correct you. It's just meant for them to vent their anger towards you. Moses asks a question. Must we bring you water from the rock? But it's not a question. It's a statement. It's like, can you do anything right? Do I have to do everything for you? That's the idea there. They're meant, these are words meant to harm, not to heal. And so... In his anger, this is how Moses uses his words. He misuses his leadership as a a moment to just vent his frustration. So what does God do in response? Look at verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Man, on first reading... I'm I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, really? Like Moses has been this faithful leader for about 40 years and he has over and over again tried to submit to what God has said and lead faithfully and do everything just as the Lord has commanded him. And on one bad day, in one bad moment, in a season of grief, he steps out of line and this is what God does? I mean, his whole leadership life has been following God towards this promised land and now God says, you're not gonna go in. Man, it's easy for me initially to go, what in the world? Like, like this seems, at first glance, this seems petty of God. Like, what do we do with this? Man, I had to spend some time reflecting on God's words here. I think we need to hear them again to understand, like, for God, this isn't just about, oh, you did this one thing, not the way I told you. What God says is, you didn't trust me enough. See, for for God, the issue is not just about Moses' actions. It's about Moses' character, his heart towards the Lord. Here's what we need to understand. Trust is an inward disposition that leads to outward actions. 
Trust is an inward disposition that leads to outward actions. And so here we have Moses who's unwilling to trust the Lord to do what? To honor him as holy in front of the Israelites. What does that mean? Okay, how did Moses do this? How did he not honor God as holy? Moses, think back through the commands. He takes the staff. Moses has taken the symbol of God's authority and power. And he goes before the people holding the symbol of God's authority. But then Moses acts in his own authority. Moses stands before the people and he begins to speak. And throughout the Old Testament, Moses is referred to as a prophet. Now here's what a prophet does. A prophet speaks the words of God to the people of God. But Moses stands up with the symbol of God's authority, speaking like a prophet, but all he does is put words in God's mouth. Moses says things God never commanded him to say, just vents his frustration and anger and turns himself into the judge over the people. And then Moses chooses his own way to bring forth water. Not the way God commanded this time. So in outright disobedience, Moses essentially takes the place of God, speaks his words as if they are God's words, and then brings what God wanted in Moses' way, not in God's way. In all three accounts, Moses tries to take the place of God. Now whether in his anger he realized he was doing this or not is not the point. The point for God is, you didn't trust me. And so you operated like you were in charge. Man, I hate how much I can relate to Moses in that. That I didn't trust the Lord. And so I reverted to what I thought was best and to my way of doing things. And God says, this isn't just about rules or about speaking versus striking. This is about, do you trust me? God explains a few verses later as he's talking about Moses and Aaron. He says, both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. To fail to trust is to rebel. And it's interesting that God would use that word because that's the same word that Moses said when he's mad at the people. Listen, you rebels. Moses has become blind to a harsh truth. He has become what he hates in others. And God says, Ben, you you thought they were the rebellious ones? You were the rebel. And God does all of this to wake Moses up, to see his failure, to see his sin. But here's what we need to see. That when Moses rebels, here's what God does. God rebukes and redeems. Now, I put those two together for a reason because it's so easy for us to only look at the fact that God rebukes that God has a consequence, that God speaks against Moses. But we need to see this in the larger context of God and his journey with Moses. See, in the short term, Moses is redeemed because he survives. If you, if you read much of what's going on in Exodus and in Numbers, you're going to see that when people rise up against God's leadership, that's the beginning of the end for them. And for some of them, the end comes quickly because God wants to show, I am king, I am Lord, no one else belongs on the throne, and if you come up against me, you're going to find out that you're never going to take my place. In fact, when God gives the first, like some of the the cornerstone commandments to these people, commandment number one is about the fact that they're going to have no other gods before him. He alone is Lord. And yet Moses doesn't, Moses isn't killed, he's not struck down with something, His life is spared, and that in and of itself is grace. 
But not only that, if we, if we kept reading, we would see Moses is not demoted. He's not taken out of the seat of leadership. He continues to lead the people to what he was always going to do, towards the promised land. So the message from God is not, Moses, you're not fit to lead. The message is, Moses, you're not fit to lead when we get to that new season in the new land. And so Moses continues to lead. A few chapters later, here in the book of Numbers, like God gives the Israelites victory in a battle and Moses is still leading the people. What we need to understand is in the broader story, this was not the end for Moses. This was not defining his legacy. And for some of you at Luminous City, at Hills Church, you need to hear like your failure, your moment where you stepped out of line or whatever your pattern of moments where you stepped out of line, where you sinned against God, that does not have to define you. It didn't define Moses. That was not the end of his legacy. It doesn't have to be the end of yours because we serve a God of grace who redeems even when he rebukes. See, God, God is just and so he rebukes sin. But God is merciful, and so he brings redemption right after that. See, here's, here's what I've, I've noticed. I, I grew up as a preacher's kid, and one of the things that I saw is that in my, in my spiritual family history, there was a pattern of legalism, which was basically all rebuke, no redemption. Just pointing the finger at the world and telling people they were awful. And there was this movement towards being more grace-centered, which is so good because it's right in line with God's word and God's heart. But the problem is that sometimes in the Western American church, it gets easy for us to be all redemption and no rebuke. And all of a sudden we get out of, out of alignment again because God does both. God is willing to point out our sin, to say this is what's wrong, this is against how I've ordered the universe and what I want for your life, but also this doesn't have to be the end for you. You see how we need both of those. All grace and no rebuke is like, hold on, what do I need grace for? If nothing's wrong with me and if I can do whatever I want, what do I even need grace for? But all rebuke and no redemption is like, oh my goodness, I've I've just got this judge who hates me and who doesn't care about me. And both of those are a lie and both of those are out of step with God and his son, Jesus Christ. We, We are willing to receive the rebuke from God because we believe he's bringing redemption and has brought redemption in Jesus. Now, some of you are listening and you're like, I have no clue what you're talking. What what does it mean that God would rebuke me? What does that mean? Here's what God does in our hearts. To be rebuked by the Lord is to have God wake you up to your sin, to your failure, or to the way that you have hurt other people, the way that you you have failed to live up to his expectations for your life. The ways that like Moses, you took the place like you were completely in charge and now you recognize there is a higher authority to whom you must give an account. To feel that weight on our shoulders and realize, oh my goodness, there is a God who made this world, who has a design and a a desire for my life and for the way it should be lived and I've been out of step with that again and again and again. To wake up to that is to receive the rebuke and say, God, I'm wrong. I've done it wrong. I've had the wrong mindset. I've hurt people. I've, I've hurt myself. I feel like I've ruined parts of my life. And to wake up to that, but to know that that's not where the story ends. And that's not how it was for Moses. He continues to lead the people. He gets them to the promised land, which has been his goal. God even takes him up on a mountain and lets him see the promised land. And that's where Moses dies. 
But even death is not the end of Moses' story. See, centuries later, there was this prophecy that, that a prophet like Moses would come and he would begin to lead God's people. And that man came, fully God and fully man, named Jesus. And he began to lead the people. He began to bring teaching. He began to perform miracles. He did so many things like Moses, but greater. And then one day, Jesus takes three of his closest followers and they go up on a mountain, go for this hike. And at the top, all of a sudden, just like with Moses and Aaron, the glory of the Lord appears. Except it's not among them, it's from one of them. It's Jesus who the the New Testament account says that he was transfigured. I don't know what that means, but it blows my mind. Like he, he began to shine like the sun. He's radiating light. And all of a sudden, in this moment where God's glory is being revealed in Jesus, Luke gives this account and says that two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Moses is in the promised land with the promised one, and just as in life, he is talking to God like one man talks to another. Man, he made it to the promised land, and in a better way than he ever could have expected. But not only that, what what were they talking about? They spoke about Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Okay, what what does that mean? When the text says they spoke about Jesus' departure, the Greek for that word is actually the word where we get Exodus. The book that, that's named that describes Moses' account out of Egypt as he's leading God's people out of slavery. And so they speak about Jesus who's going to have a better Exodus. He is leading God's people, not out of slavery to some nation, but out of slavery to sin and to evil to systems and powers that work against what God wants. Jesus is the one who's going to free them from all that and bring them to a better promised land. So how does Jesus do that? What's this fulfillment at Jerusalem? What they are talking about is that Jesus, the innocent one, would take the place of the guilty, would be put on a Roman cross outside the gates of Jerusalem, treated like a common criminal in the Roman Empire, and he, God, would die for the sins of the world. His body would be broken, his blood would pour out, and he would be buried in a grave. But then three days later, Jesus would have his own exodus. He would leave the grave and show that not only is he freeing us from sin and evil, he's freeing us from the fear of death. And from the grave itself, this is what Jesus was doing and what he was headed for. And so this is the good news that's been spread around the world. And then a church leader named Paul, he picks up this metaphor of Numbers 20 and Exodus 17, the rock that brings water in the desert. And look what he does with it. He's writing to a church and he starts saying that all these things that happened, they were for examples so that you could learn from them. And then he says about this moment, he says that the Israelites drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. What? And that rock was, okay, at every campus, at Luminous City, all campuses, say this word with me. Who was the rock? Christ. Like, what does that mean, Paul? He's saying, Jesus is your rock, and my rock, and our rock. He is the one who was struck on our behalf and brings water in the desert. 
He was the one who, in our disobedience, in our sin, we have struck the Lord, Christ, the rock, and yet God still provided. We've been like the Israelites who complained all the way to the promised land and questioned God's leadership, and we've rebelled, and still God provided through Jesus, the rock of our salvation. This is what Paul's saying. Like, do you believe that Jesus is your rock? That he is the one that in the barren places, he provides. He is the one who brings living water. He is the one who brings hope and forgiveness. He is the one who not only took our rebuke, but won our redemption. This is Jesus Christ, our rock, who leads us into the promised land. So do you see him as your rock? Man, you're, you're listening at Luminous City or you're at one of our campuses and, and I'm praying that God is turning your heart to see that in whatever your desert season is, a rock is there with living water and his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your mercy and grace. I thank you for taking numbers and making it an example for us that we can learn from. Would you lead us and guide us by your Spirit's power, in the powerful name of Jesus, our rock, we pray. Amen.